Well, good morning and uh, welcome to Sojourn. As Andrew said earlier, we're um, just thankful to be able to gather together this morning. Uh, my name is Justin. I'm the pastor here at Sojourn Church. And if this is your first time here, we're just grateful that God brought you here this morning. Uh, whether you came on your own or you're looking for a church or maybe this is the first time you've ever been to a church and you came uh, via an invite of a friend or something else. But no matter where you're at on your spiritual journey, we're just grateful that you're spending your time with us this morning. Uh, I just want to say a couple of quick things before we kind of get into the, the text that we're going to look at this morning. Uh, last week, my family was out of town, uh, went down to a family reunion in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And so we had uh, Jason Connor come in and preach. He's the pastor of Portico Church in Arlington, which is actually the church that this church was planted out of about four years ago. Uh, so grateful for Jason and his wife, Christy, and just coming to worship with us and serve uh, our church last week. And so if you haven't gotten a chance to listen to Jason's sermon, it's online on our website, so I'd encourage you to go do that. And I also want to say something else this morning. I just was reminded of this this morning. I uh, helped get the trailer here this morning, and uh, there are about eight or nine people that kind of descended uh, on Frost Middle School this morning to set up. And I was just reminded, man, we have a great group of servants here at this church. Uh, and that's many of you, whether it's in kids or hospitality or serving in our AV team or band or setup. Uh, it's just encouraging to see us as a family come together to serve one another uh, to make Sunday mornings happen. So thank you guys for doing that. Uh, every week we preach from the Bible. And so if you need a copy of the scriptures this morning, would you just raise your hand? We'll have a couple of folks bring a Bible around to you if you need it. Uh, we want you to be able to read along with us. We're in a series in the book of Matthew, uh, the, the chapters 5, 6, and 7, which, call, which is called the Sermon on the Mount. And so I want you to be able to read along with us this morning. So just keep your hand up if you need a Bible. And if you don't actually own one, uh, we'd love to give that to you as a gift. So feel free to take that home with you. Uh, but as we, get, be, as we begin our time this morning, let's just go to the Lord uh, in prayer together. Father, this morning, uh, just grateful for this church. Grateful, God, that you uh, are the sustainer of your church. That you're the builder of your church. This church isn't here because of people. Lord, though there are many great servants here in this church, but the reason we're here as your people is because you've instilled in us a desire to gather together. And that's a gift from you, to be together as your people under the name and banner of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, as we open up your word that talks about Jesus, that is going to be Jesus talking to us about himself and about your word, I pray that we would submit ourselves to that today. And we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for your spirit and we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate your word for us this morning. You'd help us to understand it today. Holy Spirit, we invite you here to work in this time, to bring about transformation, to bring about change. Do a work in our midst this morning. And we thank you for your great mercy that we just sang of, that apart from your mercy, apart from your grace, we are completely lost. But through Christ, we can come close to you. So help us to do that today. And we'd be changed because we've been here this morning. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, if, you, if you know my family, uh, I've got three kids. And my oldest son, Owen, is uh, six years old, just turned six in April. And uh, if you know Owen, Owen's uh, a little bit tall for his age. Uh, a lot of times people think he's seven or eight years old and he just turned six because he's just, he's just a big kid. Um, he's skinny, but he's tall. And uh, it's likely that when Owen gets full grown, he'll probably be six four, six five, something like that. Uh, once he gets to his uh, full-grown height. Now, I'm about six feet tall, and so if I, if I go to Owen and I tell Owen to exceed me in height, if I went to him today and say, hey, 
hey, buddy, I want you to exceed me in height. I want you to be taller than me. He might just say to me, one day, dad, one day, I'll get there, right? He's not there yet. He's only six, but he does come up to me every once in a while now and say, hey, I'm almost as tall as you. I'm like, well, not quite. You got about two feet to go, but you're getting there. You're getting there. Now, on the other hand, my wife, Amy, she's only about five feet, three inches tall, and she hit that at about sixth grade. Uh, that she just kind of, that was it, stopped uh, growing in sixth grade. In sixth grade, five, three, you're pretty tall, uh, but she stopped at that point in time. If I go to her and say to her, hey, I want you to exceed me in height. I want you to be taller than me. I'm asking her to do something that's essentially impossible to do. She can't make herself taller than me. It's a ridiculous thing to ask. Now, Owen, on the other hand, will go up to his mom and say, I'm almost as tall as you, and he's a little bit closer to being as tall as she is, and one day we'll soon pass her. As we get into our text today, though, what we're going to see is we're coming to a critical point in the Sermon on the Mount. We've been in this series for the last few months, looking at Jesus teaching on the kingdom of God. And we get to these few verses that we're going to look at today and realize that Jesus kind of outlines something and makes some bold statements, which really are going to frame the rest of his teaching on the kingdom of God. And so it's important for us to understand what Jesus is saying today. But as we get into this text, what we're going to see is that Jesus says and tells us and calls us to exceed something that seems pretty impossible for us to actually do. It seems almost confusing that Jesus would even say the things that he says in this text that we're going to look at today. It seems so impossible, almost like me telling Amy to exceed me in height, to be taller than me. What Jesus says to us this morning, what he calls his followers to this morning is radical righteousness. And as we've seen throughout this series, the way of the king and his kingdom is upside down. It's upside down to the way that the world teaches and the things that the world calls us to, the world we find ourselves in. The way of the king and his kingdom stands in stark contrast, and as we look at this teaching of Jesus, it confronts our lives. I think so many of us, if we've been here for the last few months and we've been looking at what Jesus says to us, we've, we've recognized the fact that Jesus' words are, are challenging. They've confronted our lives. They confront the way we think, the way we live, whether we call ourselves Christians or don't. The teachings of Jesus are important and critical. And so my hope this morning is that we will see this call to radical righteousness as we look at what Jesus says, that we'll see it as being one of the most kind things that Jesus could say to us. One of the most kind things that he could say to us this morning. And my hope is as we recognize that, as we look at this text, that God will use it to transform our lives. So may God bless the preaching of his word this morning. If you haven't already, you can flip open to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 17 through 20 this morning. 17 through 20. This is what Jesus says to you and to me today. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has just finished teaching on what we call the Beatitudes, these characteristics of his kingdom people. 
telling us this is what it looks like if you have come close to the king and you're seeking to walk and follow his ways. These are marks of his life, characteristics of his life, of your life. And he's called his kingdom people, as we looked at last week, to be salt and light in a very dark and decaying, dying world. His kingdom people are to be outward focused, to not think so much about themselves, but to love others more than themselves and to seek to advance the kingdom of God. And it's what he calls all of them to, all of us to. We're called to be about, even now as we live here in this world as sojourners and exiles, to be kingdom people who seek to see the kingdom of God advance. And so then we get to these verses in 17 through 20, and we see that Jesus says something pretty provocative here. And one of the things we can notice right away as we look at these few verses is that Jesus is talking about the law, the law of God. And he's talking about how it relates to our own lives. And so to look at this, these texts this morning, we're going to break it down into three points. Really looking at two verses, then the next two verses, and then kind of asking a question. So the first point is this, Christ and the law. How does Jesus relate to the law? We'll see this in verses 17 and 18. The second point is the Christian and the law. How do we, as followers of Christ, relate to the law of God? In verses 19 and 20. And then we're going to ask this question, what do we do now? What do we do now? So our first point, Christ and the law. Verses 17 and 18. In verse 17, Jesus says very clearly, He didn't come to abolish the law he came, or, or the prophets. Now it's important for us to make sure that we understand what He's talking about here. See, whether you've grown up in the church or not, maybe this is the first time you've been in the church in a long time or ever, and we hear terms like this, the law and the prophets, and we may not really understand what they're really talking about here. So I want to make sure we have a good grasp on what Jesus is referring to. What does he mean by the law and the prophets? Notice that this is a, a definitive thing. He's not, he's not saying a law or some laws or a prophet or some prophets. He's saying the law, the prophets. When Jesus talks about the law, he's talking about the body of commandments that God has given to his people. He gave this body of commandments through a mediator, through Moses. And this is, the law is, is revealed instruction. It's, it's God's revealed instruction on how to live. The law tells us about God. It tells us about humanity. It tells us about salvation. It tells us about the way to live life. And we see that through the Old Testament as God gives his law to his people to instruct them on how to follow him and live. It's the, the good way of living life before the face of a holy God. The prophets are a collection of inspired writings, of messengers that God sent to his people. God had called his people to live a certain way, but oftentimes as we look through the Old Testament, we see God's people turn away from him. They don't seek to follow him. They, they want to kind of follow him, but follow their own gods, their own desires, their own will, the the gods and ways of the nations they find themselves in. And so God sends prophets over and over again. He sends prophets to exhort and rebuke his people, to, to call them back to his ways, to follow him. He calls and sends his prophets to encourage his people about life under the lordship and kingship of God. And so when Jesus says the law and the prophets here, what he's doing is, is he's, he's using a common shorthand phrase to talk about the entirety of what we call the Old Testament. The 39 books of the Bible from Genesis to Malachi, when, when Jesus says the law and the prophets, he's talking about all of those things, all of those books of the Bible that we call the Old Testament. And it's in the law, it's in the prophets, and it's in all of the Old Testament that we learn about God. We learn about his characteristics. We learn about his ways. It's through all the Old Testament that we learn about sin, 
the fact that we've rebelled against God. We learn about our need for salvation. And in the midst of all this, we also learn of the promise that God gives. The promise of a Messiah, of a Savior, of one who will come and rescue and restore God's people. So Jesus asks, or makes this statement, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. So why does Jesus say this at this point? Well, Jesus is anticipating some objection. He's anticipating objection from the people that are listening to him teaching. Maybe it's from his disciples who he has, he's called close to him, who are, who are listening to him, but likely it's the crowd beyond the disciples. If we go back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, we see that his disciples have come close to him, but they've come out of the midst of a larger crowd. And so it's likely here he's anticipating objection from this crowd beyond his disciples, people who are perhaps listening to Jesus but not following Jesus. Maybe that's where some of you find yourself this morning. You're, you're interested in listening to Jesus, learning what Jesus has to say, but you're not quite to the point of following Jesus. Perhaps people are troubled by Jesus and all that he's saying. They're, they're troubled by his attitude towards the law and towards the Old Testament, something they cherished. Most of Jesus' listeners at this point are, are Jewish. They're familiar with the Old Testament text. They've been raised and learned all about it, and they're growing up. And hearing Jesus teach the way he is is, is challenging. They're, they're nervous. I mean, Jesus has flipped so much on its head already, so much on the teaching that these people are familiar with. He, he, he's flipped it on its head. So they may be thinking, Jesus, are you chucking the law? Are you getting rid of it? Are you disregarding God's word? Are you throwing out the Old Testament? Are you kind of ripping it out of your Bible and and throwing it away, saying it's not necessary anymore? I mean, who is this guy that he would speak with such authority? What Jesus is saying and teaching is making people nervous. Does Jesus make you nervous? I mean, he should. Jesus isn't somebody that's comfortable that we can just kind of tuck in our pocket or put in a box and manage. We don't manage Jesus. Jesus should make us nervous because his kingdom and his ways are so upside down from the ways of the world that you and I live in. And he presses on every aspect of your life. There's no part of your heart, no part of your life that Jesus doesn't seek to address. And we're going to see that through the rest of this Sermon on the Mount. It, It makes us nervous because he's invading every part of our lives. So Jesus anticipates this objection, but he's saying, no, no, I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to get rid of the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. Now, the first part of this sentence would have been comforting for those that were nervous, right? Okay, good, Jesus, you're not getting rid of the law. But the second part of this sentence would have been like, spit your water out startling, right? Like, wait, 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 what did you just say? You you, you didn't come to get rid of the law? You came to fulfill it? Who are you that you could say something like that? I mean, this is almost crazier for his listeners to hear him say that than it would be for him if he did say that he was going to abolish the law and the prophets. So what does it mean that he came to fulfill them? See, something we need to understand as we look at our Bibles, as we look at the scriptures, and we need to understand about the law and the prophets is that both of them prophesy. Both of them prophesy. Both the law and the prophets. What I mean by that is that they both point to something. But they both point to something that is going to fulfill, to bring to completion all of God's will and all of God's plans. The law is not an end in itself. It was never meant to be. The prophets are not an end in themselves. They were never meant to be. They were always meant to point to something greater. And so Jesus is indeed making a bold statement. What he's saying here is that all of the Old Testament pointed towards something, and all that it pointed towards finds its culmination in me. 
I mean, Jesus fulfills specific predictions about the coming Messiah. The prophets talked about this rescuer who would come, that he'd be born in Bethlehem, that he would come from David's line, that he'd be born from the tribe of Judah, born of a virgin. Jesus fulfills all of that. Jesus fulfills many events in Israel's history, which all foreshadowed his life as being the true Israel, a representative of God's people. Jesus fulfilled the wisdom literature that we find in the Psalms and the Proverbs and other wisdom literature by embodying wisdom. He fulfilled the law by obeying it perfectly. And he fulfills the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, which always pointed to the need for a greater, lasting sacrifice. As we look through the Old Testament, we recognize God's people had to come again and again and again and offer sacrifice for their sin. Because every day they sinned. Every day they, they, in some of the thought of their actions, they turned away from God. And so they had to come to the temple over and over and over again to offer sacrifice, to have atonement for their sin, to cover over that sin. But that pointed to the need for something greater because they had to keep doing it. Even the priests who administered the sacrificial system had to atone for their own sin. They were not sinless people. They needed somebody to rescue them. See, the goal and the purpose of the entirety of the Old Testament was to point to the need for a Messiah Messiah and Savior to fulfill it. The entire Old Testament has a prophetic function, and Jesus says, I came to fulfill all of it. See, Jesus came to be and do what no one else could be and do. He didn't repeal the law. He filled it up and out fully and completely. He didn't disconnect or dismantle the law. He connected it further and built up upon it further still. So no, Jesus doesn't get rid of the law, but he also doesn't just endorse the law. He doesn't come just to say, yes, I'm going to put my stamp of approval on the law. No, Jesus says he came to straight up fulfill all of it, everything that it requires. He is the what and the who that the law has always pointed to. The law was a shadow of what was to come. It was always intended to be that way, and Jesus is the substance it used to be like if you saw a shadow on the ground of a tree, you wouldn't look at that shadow and say, oh, that's the tree. No, something else has to, has to be shining on that. That's the fulfillment of that shadow. Jesus is the substance of everything the law pointed to. As one scholar says, the law had reached its goal and taken on the face of Jesus. So something we have to see here, something that's so important, even for our own discipleship. We say discipleship, I just mean our, our following of Jesus are seeking to learn and follow Jesus in all of life. Something that's good for us to to notice and learn here about that is how Jesus interacts with God's Word. See, what Jesus does here is critical. He, He validates all of the Old Testament as being God's authoritative Word for all of life. The Old Testament is authoritative. It doesn't get replaced. It gets fulfilled by Jesus. Right here, Jesus is essentially saying that all of the Bible is about Him. And so for you and I, when we look at the Bible, we can't just be New Testament Christians, New Testament followers of Jesus, because Jesus was an Old Testament guy. He loved God's Word and said it was authoritative for all of our life. We have to look at it through the lens of Jesus. I mean, this this is a mic drop moment for Jesus. I mean, he could just like walk off the stage like, boom, I'm out. I came to fulfill all of this. It's so significant for him to say this. So significant for him to declare, I came to do what no one else is capable of doing. You can't do this. You can't do this. Only I can do this. And so this then shapes everything for God's people. 
as they look back and understand the scriptures, it shapes everything for them. As they look forward, as you and I look forward in our lives, it shapes everything for us to understand that Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. But it's even more significant and more personal because of what he says in verse 18. In verse 18, he says this, is gonna, this law, this, this word of God, these commands of God will last until the very end of the age. They're in full force until the very end of the age. That's what he means when he says an iota or dot. An, an, an iota or yoda is the, is, the, is, the, um, is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It's the smallest letter there. And the, and the, the talking about a dot is the, the little dots they would use just to, on the ends of their writing and the ends of letters. He's, he's trying to get down to the minutiae here and say, look, I'm talking about even the letters of everything that's written. None of it goes away. I'm not erasing it. I'm not deleting it. I'm not getting rid of it. All of it is in full force until all of it is accomplished. And that's important for us to notice. Until all of it is accomplished. Until everything that it speaks of comes to fruition and is fully fulfilled. The law of God still matters, Jesus declares, which leads to our next point. We understand Christ's interaction with the law, but then we have to ask the question or come to the realization of, well, well, how do I interact with that? So our second point is the Christian and the law. And this comes in verses 19 through 20. See, Jesus throws down in verse 17 and 18, but then he drops in this critical word in verse 19. In verse 19, we see Jesus say, therefore, therefore, In light of this, this means this is not just a theological discussion Jesus is talking about here. He's taking something very theological, talking about the law of God, talking about the prophets, talking about his fulfillment of those things, and then saying, therefore, okay, how does this relate to your life? This is practical living that Jesus is getting down to in real life. What he's saying is God's word, all of it, from beginning to end, is relevant and important for your life. Therefore, Jesus says, if you relax one of the commandments of the kingdom of God and you teach other people to relax those commandments, don't care, it's not a big deal, Jesus says you'll be the least in the kingdom of God. Some scholars think that means him saying you're not going to be a part of the kingdom of God. But if you uphold them, if you teach them to value and cherish God's word, to seek to follow after it, then you will be called great. So at the end of the day, we have to understand that as Christians, we need to take the law of God seriously. Now, if I came to your house tomorrow and I brought the U.S. tax code and I dropped it on your kitchen table, all the laws about all of our taxes in the U.S., and I just dropped it on your table and said, hey, I want you to have a great week. Would you just read through this? It'll make your day. You'd probably laugh at me thinking it was a joke. The U.S. tax law, if you remove all of the commentary on it, and it's just straight up the law, there's no legislative history in it, it's about 4,000 pages long. We wonder why our country is in such a mess sometimes. But listen, if we're honest, I think oftentimes we, we hear and we, we think about God's law and we think the same way, right? It, we address it, we approach it as if it's tax law. This is boring, this is dry, this is disconnected from real life. Why do I need to read this? Amy and I right now are, are reading uh, in, in a kind of a reading plan through the Bible, uh, reading parts of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we've most recently just been in the book of Leviticus. And if we're honest, at times reading through Leviticus can feel cumbersome. It can feel uh, laborious. Like we're just, we're just trudging through it. It just at times feels disconnected from life. But we have to see here that Jesus is saying we can't let one part of God's word pass away. We can't lessen one aspect of it. Leviticus is still important for your life. Because all of the law is true and all of the law is to be obeyed. 
And then Jesus goes on in verse 20 and he says something even more challenging to us. So I'm saying all this stuff, none of it's going to pass away. It's relevant for your life. And then he says this, that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And the scribes and Pharisees are, are, are experts in the law. They, they live their lives seeking to follow God's law, seeking to obey every aspect of it. And so he's saying, unless you are, your righteousness, your right living exceeds that of them, then you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So what righteousness means here. It's about your life and your lifestyle. It's a life of conformity to God's will and God's ways. So here's the deal, Sojourn. Here's the crux of the relevance of this for you and me. If you want to be a part of the kingdom of God, you must exceed the experts in the law in keeping the law. Seems to be what Jesus is saying here. So this is Jesus' call to radical righteousness, and it seems pretty impossible. Jesus came to fulfill the law. All of the law is true. All of the law must be obeyed. And obedience to that law must surpass the law experts. So what do we do now? What, what do we do with this call to radical righteousness? Because Jesus isn't flippant with his words. He, he, he's not accidental in what he says or how he says it. He is precise and particular and purposeful in how and what he communicates to his listeners. See, what's going on here is Jesus is pressing on something deeper. And what he's doing is he's addressing and counteracting two errors. And he's teaching us about the kingdom of God. He's teaching us about the kingdom of God. He's confronting two errors. The error of the religious and the error of the irreligious. See, the scribes and Pharisees, these experts of the law, they cared about God's law. They, 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 they valued God's law and they sought to follow God's law, but they did it through outward conformity. They wanted to have outward obedience because they believed that they gained favor with God. They gained standing with God by doing and performing. That's the error of the religious. Behavior modification, box checking, what we call legalism. Just do these things, jump through these hoops, obey these rules and regulations, just look good on the outside and you'll be good to go. I mean, these religious leaders cared so much about following the law and having an outward appearance of righteousness and obedience, they sought to interpret the law in a way that would make it possible for them to actually follow it. And so what they did is they, they added things to it to explain it and make commentary. Well, when, when God says this, this is what he really means. This is how you obey. This is how you do this. Remember that tax code I talked about earlier? There's another version of the tax code that's estimated to be about 75,000 pages long. 75,000 pages. Does anybody read that thing? But the reason it's so long is because there's been all this stuff added in. Legislative history, ways to interpret the tax code so that you can understand how to actually put it into force. Well, the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, essentially did the same thing. They took God's law and they added to it and they created this version of it that was just a bear, a beast and it wasn't just burdensome for God's people. It was crushing for them. Absolutely crushing. This is the error of the religious. But the opposite error is also in view here. Because of the crushing weight of the rules and regulations that were imposed by the experts of the law on God's people, some people might also hear what Jesus says and think, oh, good, good. We can just get rid of all this stuff. We can just chuck all of it. We can make up our own way of living. We don't even need a king to follow. We can be our own king, make our own way, create our own destiny. 
It's the error of the irreligious. Create our own personal morality to live by. We don't need any of this stuff anymore. And see, everyone here today, I think, falls into one of these two categories when it comes to temptation. We're either tempted to being religious. Some of you are tempted towards being religious. Maybe you've believed or you've been taught that all you need to do is just be a good person. Follow the rules. Go to church. Give. Serve. Read your Bible. Look like a good Christian. Listen to good Christian music. See good Christian movies. Good, use good Christian language. If I just look like a Christian, if I just appear this way, then that's all I need to do. It's, this, it's about outward appearance, outward conformity to a way of life. And if I do those things, then I'll be welcomed into the kingdom of God. Some of you are tempted towards that. Some of you, though, I think are probably tempted towards being irreligious. You've walked away from religion. Maybe you've never been a part of it in the first place. Maybe this is your first time to gather with the church in years, or maybe it's the first time you've gathered with, gathered with the church ever. You've charted out your own path. You've made your own way. You abide by your own moral compass that you've created. But listen to me. The problem with both of these temptations is the exact same. You want the benefits of the kingdom, but you don't want to follow the king. You want the benefits of new life and peace and joy and happiness and all those things, but you don't want to follow the king. And Jesus confronts both here. And in doing so, he really sets up the framework for the rest of what he's going to teach, specifically in Matthew chapter 5. He's basically helping us understand if you want to understand a life that is pleasing to God, it must be a life lived in and through me, in and through Jesus. See, the kingdom righteousness that Jesus is talking about can and does exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees or self-made righteousness Not in degree, but in kind. Jesus is talking about something deeper here. This isn't about outward righteousness or outward obedience. This is heart-level righteousness. We've talked about this in the past, that out of the heart is where everything else in your life flows. All of your belief, all of your action flows from your heart, and so Jesus is getting down to the level of your heart. Because the reality of what God requires is far more radical than outward conformity. It's far more radical than outward obedience, than just playing the part. Or far more radical than just a complete disregard for his rightful lordship and rule in your life. What Jesus is doing here is making clear God's intent for the law. That it's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the allegiance to the king of kings. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, Jesus talks, I mean, Jesus, God, through Moses, talks about the reality that our hearts need to be circumcised. They, they need to be pruned. They need to be cut. They need to be replaced. They need to be transformed. But God is the one who does that work. We see that God is showing us here through Jesus the, the intent of the law. It's a matter of our heart and our allegiance to following him. Because the ways of God are the ways of life. They are the good ways God's Word from beginning to end, Old Testament and New Testament, calls us to this, to follow our good God and our good King. But we don't and we can't merely follow God out of outward obedience that comes from wrong motivation. Just seeking to appear a certain way, just seeking to gain something from God. And so often we really wrestle with the reality of of, of wanting the benefits of the kingdom but not following the King. In the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah, speaking on behalf of the Lord, really diagnoses this problem so well, this tension that we all face. In Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16, Jeremiah says this, Thus says the Lord, this is coming from God directly, he says this, Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths 
where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But then he says this, but they said, we will not walk in it. We will not walk in it. God is beckoning us to come to the way of living life, to look down those roads, to look down those paths and say, this is the good life. This is the good way to follow my king. And in that I find rest. But over and over again, either in word or deed or belief, we say, no, we will not walk in it. Where's that happening in your life right now? Right now in your life, where is there some part of your life, some part of your belief, some part of your heart, your outward words or actions that you know that God has called you to do something, He's beckoning you to follow Him, and you're just saying, either outright, outrightly or more overtly and subtly and craftily, you're saying, no, I will not walk in it. I will not walk in it. This tension remains. Jesus is clear. We cannot enter the kingdom of heaven if our righteousness does not exceed the righteousness of the experts of the law and the commands of God. So what this does is it leaves us in a desperate place. A desperate place. But desperation is good. Because desperation means that we've come to the end of our trying and our striving and we realize all we can do is fall on the mercy and grace of our God. See, verse 20 is the kindest thing that Jesus could say to you this morning. It's the kindest thing he could throw at you this morning, that he could place on you this morning, because in it, it is a reminder of how desperate we are, all of us for Jesus. All of us. See, I want you to hear me on this this morning. In Jesus' kingdom, you don't gain by doing, you gain by abiding. You don't gain by doing, you gain by abiding. Abiding in the one who did and does what you cannot do. In John chapter 15, Jesus says he's the vine and we are the branches. Branches cannot survive if they're disconnected from the vine. If you do yard work and you, you cut some parts of a tree off or a, a bush off or you trim a rose off of a rose bush, it might look good for a little while, but after a while it's going to die. It has to be connected to the life source in order to be able to bear out the fruit that it's supposed to. And so Jesus is calling us here to say, look, you have no life apart from me. You have no ability to do anything apart from me, so come to me. That's why Jesus can say in Matthew chapter 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, those of you that have heaped on performance and you feel shameful because you haven't lived up to your own standards or the standards that somebody else has given to you. Come to me, those of you that are beat down, that are broken over that. Come to me and find rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, Jesus says. You will find rest for your souls. Why? For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me, Jesus says. See, what God demands from us, he gives to us. And it comes through Jesus. The burden of man-made or self-made laws is heavy. It will suck you down. It will suck all the life out of you because there is no life in it. But the law of Christ is light and easy because it's a good way. Following our good king. See, we can summarize the entirety of the law as Jesus does elsewhere that we are called to love God and love others. It sums up all the law and the prophets, Jesus says. Love God and love others others. But the only way that you can do that, the only way that you're able to walk in obedience to the law of God, to love him and love others, is to come close to the righteous king and be transformed. Not from the outside in, but from the inside out. See, so often we believe that we have to clean ourselves up first. We have to clean ourselves up first, but that's not the way of the king and his kingdom. 
We, we don't come to him with our righteousness. We come to him as a hot mess. We come to him as a complete train wrecks. Just completely wretched, wretched, just wretches and failures and freaks. We come to him just as we are. We come to him with our hands open and say, I have nothing, but you have everything. We come to him and say, save me from my sin. Save me from myself. I'm tired of trying to be and do what I can't be and do. I'm tired of trying to put forth that effort of being someone I'm not. I need you. I'm desperate for you, Jesus. I want you, Jesus. See, the good news of the kingdom of God is that a new and greater righteousness has appeared, and that's always been his plan. Romans chapter 3 talks about this. In Romans chapter 3, the apostle Paul says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. No human being will be made right with God. No human being will be brought into a right relationship with him or welcomed into the kingdom by doing and seeking to obey something which you can't do. Why? He says, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. When the law comes to bear, we recognize how far we fall short of it. But then he says this, Romans chapter 3, verse 21, one of the greatest verses in all the scriptures, but now, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, this is the same thing Jesus is talking about. They've always bear witness to Jesus. They've always pointed to Jesus. Paul's saying the same thing. And then he says this, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. There's no distinction. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. There's no distinction. There's no one who's better. There's no one who's lesser. All of us are equal at the foot of the cross, and we all desperately need Jesus. We desperately need him. We all need a righteousness that's not our own. It's impossible to obtain from the law. We all need Christ who fulfills the law for us because we're all sinners. We're unable to do this on our own. We fall short of obedience, marred by sin and rebellion, wanting to go our own way. So Jesus went to a cross because of our sin, and he died a horrible death, excruciatingly painful death, as his hands and his feet were nailed with spikes to rough-hewn wood beams. His head was pricked with sharp thorns. His side was javelin with a, with a javelin and a spear so that water and blood flowed out of him. Why would he do that? Why in the world would he do that? Recently, a well-known pastor says that the reason God would do that is because God loved you so much that he broke the law for love so that you could be rescued. But that's not true because that's not what Jesus says. See, in verse 17, Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to break the law or disregard the law. I came to fulfill the law. And here it is for us. We have to get this because this will help us to understand all of the scriptures, all of the Bible from beginning to end. What Jesus is saying is that he came to stand between the disciples and the law. The disciples' path to obedience in the law comes through the cross of Christ. Why? Because before the cross came, Christ lived a perfect life. He obeyed the law completely, fulfilling the law fully. And because on the cross, Jesus did not break the law for love, but he loved you so much that he fulfilled the entirety of the law and all its demands, every prophecy ever ever spoken, all because he not only obeyed the law, but paid the penalty for lawbreakers like you and like me. Jesus didn't break the law. He fulfilled it completely, and he went to the cross to show that, that we deserve death. We deserve to be separated from God forever. And Jesus went to do that, to bear the weight of that punishment for you. See, church, Christ himself is required for better righteousness. 
It's requ- he's required for it to exceed the righteousness of the law experts. We have to have Jesus. Because you and I cannot fulfill the law without communion with God. And you can't have communion with God without the fulfillment of the law. And Jesus is the way to both of those things. See, the disciples' righteousness is better and exceeds the Pharisees' outward pretend righteousness because it's a righteousness connected to Jesus. We can never disconnect those things. Listen, this is the hope of verse 17 that gives us the ability to live out the reality of the call to radical righteousness in verse 20. If we just look at verse 20 and we forget about what Jesus says in verse 17, then we are all damned. But Jesus says, no, I came. I came to fulfill every aspect of this. So friend, whether you're tempted towards religion or irreligion, let me call you to reject both of them. The Christian life is not about finding a balance between religion or irreligion. Trying to balance, oh, I don't want to be legalistic, but I don't want to live a life of license, and so I need to try to balance those two things and find the middle road on that. There is no middle road on that. It's a different road. It's a road of following Jesus, resting in his grace, seeking to be who he's called us to be, not in our own effort or abilities, but by the power of the Holy Spirit he gives to us as we seek to follow after him, reject religion, reject irreligion, and follow Christ. Follow him. This gets to the crux of the matter and the hope that's provided because apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. Nothing. We're so desperate for his grace. Not only on the first day we believe, but every day after that, and we always will be. I mentioned earlier that Amy and I have been reading through Leviticus, and we're reading that in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, we're reading, we've been reading at the same time the book of Galatians. And Galatians is, is the message of Galatians is a message of grace. That life comes not by our doing, but by what Jesus has done for us. And so when we understand that Christ fulfills all of Leviticus, it frees us fully and completely. And Leviticus becomes an awesome book of the Bible to read. Because as we look at it, we recognize, well, I have sin just like the people of Israel. I have so much sin and so much uncleanness in my own life. But we look and say, Christ fulfilled all that. All that's been put away by the blood of the cross once and for all. See, church, the Bible is not about you, but it is for you. It's not about you, but it is for you. All of it from beginning to end, the law and the prophets and all of the New Testament because it tells you of the ancient ways. And it calls you to abide in the one who can lead you down them now and forever until the very end of the age to the entrance of the new heavens and the new earth and the fullness of the kingdom of God. All of the Bible does that. Amy and I like to look at houses uh, sometimes we'll get on, on, on an app like Zillow or something and look at houses that are for sale around us. And occasionally we'll go to an open house uh, or we'll have a, a realtor friend take us to look at some of these houses. We just like to, to look at them. Sometimes think, oh, should we move? Should we not move? I don't know. And so we, we just like to look at different houses. But say we're driving by a house that seems pretty amazing. Just a, just a perfect house, awesome house. It's, it's intriguing. It's inviting. It's interesting. It's, it's in a great part of the city, in the city of Fairfax, where we want to be. And we want to go inside, but we can't go inside. It's not for sale. We want, we want to be in that house. We want to hang out in that house. We want to get in. So what are our options to do that? Now, we could wait to see if it ever goes on sale. And we could look at pictures, or we could go to an open house, or we could have a realtor take us through that house, but it's still not quite the same because we're not guests in the home. We're just passing through. It's temporary. It doesn't feel very homely for us. We're just strangers. Now, we could also sit outside the house and wait for the owners of the house to leave, 
and then actually break into the home if we really wanted to see it. We could walk in, feel pretty good, but at that time, we're just criminals. We're not welcome friends. When they come home, they find our fingerprints, and we'll likely end up in a jail cell, not hanging out on their couch. So how do we get in? How do we get into this place? What's the best way to get in to be in this house? It's by going through the owner of the house. It's by going to them. It's their home. The way to see inside, to be a guest, is to come by way of the person whose home it actually is. See, the amazingly simple yet ridiculously deep reality of all that Jesus is saying here is that entrance into the kingdom of heaven does not come through finagling or performing or scaling walls or slipping in unnoticed. Entrance into the kingdom of heaven comes through the king himself. So come to him today. Respond to him today. Quit trying to do it on your own. Quit trying to make your own way. Receive Jesus today. See, when we come to Jesus it's then in and through Jesus that we can obey all that Jesus calls us to. Because following Jesus means actually following him. Actually living your life in obedience to what he calls you to because his burden is easy and his yoke is light. That doesn't mean that what Jesus says is simplistic or simple-minded or easy for us to do all the time. When he says it's easy, it's not like, oh, this is, no piece, this is a piece of cake. It's, no, it's easy because it's connected to Jesus. It's easy because he allows us and enables us to follow him. It's so much more rewarding because in, in him and his ways in this life, we're continually challenged to be stripped away of all self-reliance and on the things of this world. It's a call to radical righteousness because it stands in contrast to everything this dark and decaying world tries to offer or sell to you. See, church, Christ's righteousness is ra radical not because it was new, but because Jesus lived it. And now he gives it to us. So what do we do? We're challenged to live differently than the religious or the irreligious because neither of those people are following Jesus. But Jesus, that's what he calls you to do. He calls you to follow him now. And it's in those moments that deep transformation happens. Real freedom is experienced and true life begins. So as we close, let me call you this morning to look down the path to the ancient ways where the good way is and walk in it. And by so doing, my hope for you is that you would find rest for your soul, rest from your striving and your clamoring, rest from your guilt and your shame, rest from your pretense and your pride. See the radical righteousness Jesus calls you to and follow him. He is your wisdom. He is your righteousness. He is your sanctification. He is your redemption. And the result is it leaves no room for boasting in you. It leaves no room for boasting it creates a, a bowing of your head and your heart, a beating of your chest, an acknowledgement that your need for grace in Jesus' perfect record, and then boasting in the God who gives it to you freely and lavishly. A verse in a song we sang earlier said this, Without thy sweet mercy I could not live here. Sin would reduce me to utter despair. But through thy free goodness my spirits revive, and he that first made me still keeps me alive. As we come to the table this morning, we're going to partake of a meal that reminds us that through Jesus we have our spirits revived and that through Jesus we're still kept alive, walking with him. We're able to live out and follow all the laws and commands of our good God and our King and our Savior because he poured out his mercy on us and he changed our hearts and he's given us his righteousness. And so as you eat and drink this morning, be encouraged, be refreshed in the reality that what God requires, he provides and that now, if you know Christ, you have freedom in him. You have freedom 
because his body was broken for you and his blood was shed for you. He didn't break the law for you, he fulfilled it. And those of you that are not followers of Christ, I just ask you not to come forward. Don't eat the bread, don't drink the cup, because this doesn't give you righteousness. It doesn't give you right standing with God. Only Jesus does that. And so if you know that you don't know Christ, I want to invite you to ask Christ to save you today. Respond to the gift of grace. Take Christ's righteousness today. He freely extends it to you. God just calls you to repent of trying to do it on your own, to believe that Jesus came to do what he said he came to do, to die on a cross for you and be raised to new life so that you could have life. So if that's you this morning, would you take Christ today? That's why this church is here. We want you to know Jesus. So you can pray in your seat. If you don't know Jesus, ask him to save you today and next week you can come forward as a brother and sister in Christ and celebrate the fact that Jesus saved you too. If you have questions about what it means to know Jesus, please come talk to me. Come talk to the friend that brought you here this morning. Those of you that will come forward, you can come to the front or to the back and tear off a piece of bread and take a small cup to drink. And what Jesus did for you, purposefully and particularly for you, with your name and your face on his mind, will be spoken over you this morning. Let's pray. Father, this morning... We want to simply just come before you and thank you that what you required from us, you have provided for us. And it comes in and through Jesus. We want to thank you this morning that your ancient ways are the good way of life. So help us to heed your call this morning. Help us to heed your call to radical righteousness this morning, but to rest in the righteousness of Christ. Lord, we are desperate for Jesus. And so as we're reminded of our desperation I pray that we would run quickly to Jesus. I pray we'd run quickly to the table this morning and be reminded and spiritually renewed and refreshed as we renew that covenant promise that Jesus paid for our sins so that we might follow in the good ways that you've provided for us. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word that you give to us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that brings conviction to us. Would you transform us because we've listened to your word this morning and now allow us to celebrate the goodness of your grace that you've poured out on us. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.